Good morning, everyone. My name is Peter, and uh, I'm going to introduce our storyteller for this week, uh, who is Tim Davis. Before I get to Tim Davis, I want to get to Tim Crow for a second. He doesn't know I'm going to say this, but Tim Crow uh, is retired, and he's become Tim the Toolman Crow, uh, renovating his kitchen. Uh, but today is his birthday. So I'm going to say happy birthday, Tim Crow. <laughs> I have no favoritism towards him. I just, it just popped up on my Facebook feed. That's how I know it's his birthday. Um, I want to introduce Tim Davis to us all here this morning. And uh, I've been having fun thinking about what I want to say about uh, Tim today. <laughs> he's, he's scared. I can see it on his face. But actually, the opposite is true. The thing I want to say about uh, Tim Davis, besides the fact that he's the lightest-skinned African-American I know in my life, he's from Zimbabwe, uh, is that, uh, is Julie who put it best, she said, I've never heard Tim speak from a place of fear. He's been just a wise presence on the leadership team, and I really appreciate you being on there and doing all this work behind the scenes for our church. So thank you, Tim. Come on up and tell us the story. Well, I'm glad to bring some diversity to the church. <laughs> so... I've uh, been coming to the church for 18 years, and really not a lot of people have heard this story. This is the story about how I met my wife. Um, so I was 26 years old. I was living in South Africa. I was renting a house with three other single girls. And, you know, my friend said how fortunate I was to have three single girls as housemates. And I said to them, you don't understand the half of it. Whenever there was a dead rat in the pool or the drain was blocked, that instantly became my job, and I still needed to pull my fair share with cooking and cleaning. But things were drawing to a close on that front. Uh, I'd been selected by work to go in a few months on a two-year assignment to London. So I was in Johannesburg in South Africa at the time. So I was wrapping things up at home, greatly looking forward to this new chapter in my life. And then out of the blue, one of my housemates had a visit from one of her high school friends. Uh, this was Lee. Lee was a single mom, and she had a two-year-old baby with her, Sean. Uh, they were in town for a few days to visit her aunt and uncle. As soon as I met Lee and Sean, I was mesmerized. I couldn't get enough of them. Um, and over those few days, I found myself wanting to spend more and more time with them. My friends gathered around me and they to ask me what I was doing. It's like, um, they wondered what was going on. This uh, sort of impulsivity was really not like me. Some warned me about the motives of a single mom, but I knew that wasn't it because it was me doing all the pushing. In fact, Lee thought, you know, she was being very polite about this, but clearly she thought, this sort of familiarity from a guy who's just about to leave town, this is bad, you know, and it's just not a good idea. My other friends came around and said, you know, don't you dare hurt her. Um, and so I was really confused. I really didn't know what I should be doing. And, you know, in, in pr praying about it, I felt a certain comfort from the Lord speaking to me, saying, this is the wife and son that I've chosen for you. And, and I'm naturally very skeptical of whenever I hear people saying, oh, God spoke to me and told me this or that. And, 
But I just, I felt it very strongly. Um, and I spelt, spent many restless nights tossing and turning, wrestling with God and myself and wondering what I should do. Was I really hearing from God? The consequences of either path were very serious and life-changing. Uh, this was not just Lee. She, Sean and Lee came as a package. Was I ready for that too? The time was running out. I had to make a decision. Um, either I put her out of my mind, I go to London uh, and just get on with life. That was the sensible choice. Or I follow this leading from God um, and pursue her and then maybe just put off this overseas assignment. So I said to God, I'm just uncertain. I really cannot make up my mind. I need some sort of a sign. And, you know, I prayed fervently for that. Um, and I said, just send me something to know if I should pursue Sean and Lee or if I should just drop it. So a few days later, Lee's aunt and uncle uh, were planning a barbecue, and they offered me to come join. I think they wanted to get a good look at this guy that was suddenly showing so much interest in their niece. So I offered to drive. Um, I had just had my car detailed, uh, and I had an ad for it in the paper. Um, and someone was actually coming over the very next day to come look at it. So we set off on this barbecue, and uh, you know, Lee had told me, she says, I need to just warn you, Sean can get car sick. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, you know, kids when you're on a road trip, they don't give you anywhere near the amount of time you need you know, when they have a need. It's not like, hey, mom and dad, maybe in half an hour, can you find a restroom for me? That would be convenient. It's like, I have an emergency right now. And so I knew about this, you know. So there I am sort of on the freeway. I'm sort of in the slow lane, 50 miles an hour. I'm just waiting, you know, for the signal, and I'm about to pull over to the shoulder. And, and then it comes. Sean is like, mom, I'm not feeling so... <laughs> you know, and it's like... It's amazing how much could come out of a two-year-old, I tell you. <laughs> so, Lee was terribly embarrassed about all this. We all pitched in that afternoon and cleaned up the car. Um, anyways, unforgettable. We obviously did a good job because the guy came the next day and bought the car and was none the wiser, <laughs> you know. It's like, <laughs> it's an interesting smell in the car, but it looks clean. <laughs> Somehow, that was the sign that I needed. Uh, I, felt <laughs> I felt God was reminding me that this was an interruption. It was his interruption. That things might get messy, but just go with it. And everything will work out. So after just a short three weeks of having met Lee, I proposed to her and Sean, and she accepted. We... Uh, we called my, my poor parents, and uh, I told them that I'd be stopping en route to London to visit and to introduce them to Lee and Sean, and could they please help organize a wedding? <laughs> this was like in about six weeks' time, so my poor mom nearly had a heart attack. Uh, I don't think you know, I could ever apologize enough for doing that to her. My friends all thought we were nuts, um, but God's provision was with us. And all worked out fine. Lee and I have now been happily married for 22 years. And I will forever, she will forever be my gift from God that I will hold loosely and gratefully. And for whom I will be forever grateful. 
So she's actually uh, in Africa at the moment uh, at a rhino sanctuary. So. <laughs> so that's my story. Okay, I'm going to do this morning's Bible reading, <coughs> if I can compose myself. <laughs> okay, this morning's reading comes from the book of Colossians. Um, you can follow along on the, in your Bible or up on the screen. I'll be reading from uh, Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18 from the New American Standard Version. As to all my affairs... Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances, that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas, cousin Mark, about whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are for, from the circumcision, and they are provided to be, they have proved to be an encouragement to me. Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all of the will of God. For I testify for him that he, was a deep, he has deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read amongst you, I have also read in the church of the Laodiceans that you and your part read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry for which you have received in the Lord, that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. The word of the Lord. Was it fun to watch Tim squirm with all those words? We're not even preaching from that passage. That was just for kicks. We just want to hear your accent is all. <laughs> My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. We are going to finish out the book of Colossians today. And uh, I'm excited for that. And I'm really excited about next week. We're starting a new series in the books of 2nd and 3rd John. We did 1st John a bit ago called True. And that's just a dictionary definition in accordance with fact or reality. So today, we're going to talk about the body of Christ. Now, Paul, he doesn't teach about the body of Christ, but he functions in the body of Christ. 
And I think what Paul is saying here is all the high theology and Christology, that all comes to, comes, uh, boils down to how we function as a people group. Now, um, Jesus taught this also that uh, we can say things, we can believe things, we can even do things. But if we can't get along, if we're not connected to each other, if we don't love each other, if we're not forgiving each other, if we're not remaining in each other's presence in healthy, good ways, then nobody's going to believe our testimony about any kind of God at all. And that's just the reality. A way to say this is you can't experience joy and fulfillment and proper self-esteem and transcendence beyond yourself unless and until you are right in your human-to-human relationships. That C.S. Lewis said other human beings bear the weight of glory. There's nothing else on earth in our life that has God's glory the way other fellow human beings do. And God created us to be connected to each other. And through this connection to each other, we experience the presence and love of God here on earth. Human relationships uh, serve as the linchpin for what it means to be human. So for example, uh, you think about Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs. The most primary need we have is to be safe, physical and psychological safety. And as soon as we're sort of safe, the very next instinct that kicks in is we need to eat. Right? And as soon as we're physically and psychologically safe and our bellies are full, now we're just at zero. And then we begin to sort of look around and say, oh, who am I? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to be? And the very next thing that enters our brains is we have to connect to one another. It's this thing that Abraham Maslow calls belonging, what psychologists call attachment. And the book of Colossians ends with Paul's practice and practical theology of the body of Christ. Now, there are lots of aspects of what it means to be a body of Christ that's practiced in Paul's letters. Uh, We see things about how we are to labor for one another in prayer. We see an example of advocacy. We speaking out on behalf of somebody else. Paul talks about the various roles that we are called to play. He talks about the concept of encouragement, how important it is to encourage each other as a body of Christ. But the main thing that the Colossians heard in this section of uh, Paul's letter to them is these two little words, Onesimus and Mark. Now, um, just like church today, there was a bit of drama in the church back then, and Onesimus was uh, in one of uh, these interesting situations because he wasn't a Christian, and he was a slave. He belonged to a master, and a Christian master, and he ran away, which is violating the law, violating his agreement, and back then, slavery is not how we understand it today. It was sort of a contract, and Onesimus uh, had an agreement, a debt to pay or some way that the master was paying uh, for his existence, and Onesimus had agreed to the terms, and he was what's called a bondservant. But he runs away, and Paul works to restore this relationship. 
to reconcile master and slave. And uh, the church knew about this incident. And so when they read this, they sort of got interested in it. So that's what jumped off the page. The other name, Mark, uh, we know, had a falling out with the apostle Paul. Uh, Barnabas was Paul's first advocate. So Paul was a persecutor of the church, and then he became a Christian. And then uh, he showed up uh, to meet other believers, and people were really uh, leery of him because he had been an enemy of the church. Uh, but it was Barnabas who stood up for Paul and advocated for Paul. But it turns out Barnabas is also Mark's cousin, and he's been triangled into this conflict between Paul and Mark, so much conflict that they decided to forsake each other and uh, just started, decided to go their own ways. But here, Paul is beginning to build bridges with Mark. It's drama in the church, right? And so the Colossians sort of like, opened their eyes and ears to hear about this story. This is what they cared about. And so there isn't a teaching on this idea of reconciliation and restoration to the body of Christ, but that's the practice of it, and I want to camp there, and I want us to talk about this idea of how to be restored to one another. And I wanted to do this because this is the single best way to testify to the world for the love of God. How will the world know that God gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins? How will the world know that it's the gospel of grace and not the gospel of works? How? What will cause other people to believe this message that God loves us and that he has reconciled us to himself, that he has reconnected us to himself, forming the body of Christ. How will they know when we practice that reality among us? And the way I want to zero in on that further is today I want to talk about how to say these two little words, I'm sorry. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to repeat after me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, let's do it again. I'm sorry. There's no but after that. There's no if after that. Just I'm sorry, period. Nothing else. And there's no better first step we can take to get reconciled to one another, to begin to restore trust. Okay. Uh, there's sort of like three parts to this sermon, and there's a, a bit of reading, and today we have, we're constrained for time, so I'm going to sort of read through these things. They'll sort of be like movements, and then we'll close, and then we'll move into the communion. So there isn't a lot of me talking, uh, as uh, we usually have, so uh, be patient with the reading, but the content is really good, and I try to curate it as, to make it as efficient as possible. The first uh, part here. Uh, I want to refer to Harvard's Grant and Gluick study. Now, you know Stanford University has lots of experiments and tests they've done over the years, but their most famous one is the Stanford Prison Experiment, right? And we won't go into that. Now, this is probably Harvard's greatest study. And the reason this is Harvard's greatest study is that they tracked almost 1,000 people. That's a lot of people to track. They tracked them over the course of 75 years. They tracked their emotional and psychological well-being. 
They track them by analyzing their blood samples, conducting brain scans, and pouring over self-reported surveys, as well as observing actual interactions between these people, and they compile their findings, and they analyzed it, and they did it for 75 years. So I think this is sort of a bulletproof study as far as what they conclude. And here's what they discovered. This is the conclusion. Here we go. One thing surpasses all the rest in terms of importance. The clearest message that we get from the 75-year study is this. Good relationships keep us happier and healthier. Period. That's it. After millions of dollars have been poured into this study over 75 years, that's their one main conclusion. Good relationships are key to happiness and healthiness. The biggest predictor of your happiness and fulfillment overall in life is love. Specifically, having someone to rely on helps your nervous system to relax, helps your brain stay healthier for longer, and reduces both emotional as well as physical pain. And conversely, those who feel lonely are more likely to see their physical health decline earlier and die younger. It's not just the number of friends you have, and it's not whether or not you're in a committed relationship. What they found is it's the quality of your close relationships that matters. How much vulnerability and depth exists within them. How safe you feel sharing with one another, the extent to which you can relax and be seen for who you truly are and truly see another. There are two foundational elements to this. They break it down to two steps. Number one is love. The other is finding a way of coping with your own life that does not push love away. So you have to prioritize not only connection, but your own capacity to process emotions and stress. Take personal growth seriously so you are available for connection because relationships are messy and they're complicated, but the good life is built with good relationships. As we go through this talk today, I want to invite you to notice what other people's names and faces and situations and relationships come to mind for you. You know, don't push it aside. Don't say that's it. Just notice it, that it's there. Okay, just that's going to happen as we go uh, further into this sermon. So to conclude, what the Harvard study is saying is this. Self-care that allows you to give self is key to happiness and health. You have to care for yourself and your, uh, lead yourself in a way that makes you available for connection. You have to have the wherewithal, the energy to connect to each other. And when you connect, when you're reconnected to what I'm going to argue for is the body of Christ, you begin to feel a surge of life serum flowing through your system in a way that nothing else is able to provide for you. That's the Harvard study. Let me say it in a slightly different way that uh, brings us closer to how I want to say it. Uh, a book called The Pro Prolific and the Devour. All the resources are in my sermon notes if you want to click on those later. 
He says it this way. Jesus asserts what psychologists have confirmed, that one does, in fact, always conceive of one's relations with life in terms of one's relations with one's parents. And in proportion as these were bad, one's attitude to life is distorted. In speaking, this is the key part here, in speaking of the fatherhood of God, Jesus is teaching that God does not love us because we are good, but because we are a part of him. And he can no more hate us if we act badly than a man can hate one of its fingers when it aches. He can only want it to get well. Now, the reason I want to say it this way is it's not just that we have a, a, you know, we're a falling out with somebody and we need to make things right. That's not all there is to it. There's a context to why we want to make things right with each other. And what... Um, W.H. Auden is teaching in his book is that God created us to belong to a larger body bigger than ourselves. We are supposed to be connected. There has to be a kind of tissue connecting us, a signal strength, if you want to use a, a technology metaphor, that causes us to belong, for us to feel like we are a part of something large and permanent and good and true and right. So it's not just okay, we're floating around out there, even if we don't have trouble in our relationships, if we're not connected to a larger body. This is why gangs are so powerfully attractive. It's because we have a need to be cleaved. And if your home life is such that you have a hard time staying cleaved, you're going to want to leave, and you're going to have a greater desire to cleave onto something else. And heaven forbid that the body you happen to uh, have the most easy access to cleave to is someone that's not life-giving for you. Auden is saying, no, you were made to belong to God because you are a part of him. He doesn't just love you as this outside entity. He loves you because you are in him. You are a part of him. He made you. And he can't hate you just because you mess up or you're not good. In the same way that a man can't hate his own fingers, he can only wish it to get well. And so it's this fuller idea of restoration. It's not just connection to some random thing. It's not just any kind of connection, but it's restoration to the proper body that you were created to be connected and belonging to. So I uh, read this, and of course, I immediately thought about my toe. My toe is getting better. It's still bruised, and it's still swollen, and I pushed it. I ran four miles the other day, and that last mile just kind of, oh, it's the wrong kind of pain. So I, I got off of it yesterday, and I'm toying around with whether I should try for six today or not, you know? But why am I worried? Because it's my toe. I'm prone to show care and concern and love for this little dangling body part because <laughs> it's a part of me. I wish it to get well. I wish for it not to uh, stay this way. I so long for it to be restored to its full capacity and function and be healthy and be all that it was created to be. That's what I want by default. 
And Auden is saying, that's what God wants for us. We are a part of him. And every one of us that's not reconciled to this body, it's like a broken toe. It's an injured limb for God. And his longing, his disposition, his view of that is to make it whole again. So it's not just about you. Paul says when one part hurts, the whole body hurts. We're all handicapped in some way. We feel it. So I want to move to application and then part uh, two here. Um, So these are the five ideas that are represented in practice in today's passage. The idea of communication. Paul says, I wanted you to know. He just, FYI, that this is happening. And he wants them to be encouraged. And he wants encouragement to be flowing in the body. He wants there to be advocacy. He wants us to labor in prayer, making other people's burdens our own and carrying it with them. But more than all of that, we have to be reconciled and restored and redeemed with each other. So, as an application, I want to give you three levels of things. If one doesn't work, move on to B. And if B doesn't work, move on to C. The A is this. Think of one person that you can apologize to. And if no one comes to mind, do this second thing. Think of one person you can just check in with. Maybe it's not an overt apology that's necessary, but maybe it's just kind of fuzzy. You're not really sure how that relationship is, how the signal strength is between you and this person. Just check in with them. And then third, if that doesn't work for you, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. God, bring to my mind one person that I might experience connection with this week. Just the person to connect to in the body. So those are your three options. And when I invite you to do that, I want to show you, sort of break down in a different angle that, in a way that will, uh, I think, shed light on uh, what we're doing here uh, using this model that I've been working on for a few weeks. So uh, in the first reading, in the Harvard study said, life is messy and complex. And I think that's true. Relationships are very complicated. It's not a simple, clear-cut business. So there's a lot of complexity. On the one side of complexity, we have simplistic, shallow, and trite. We have no choice but to view each other in this way. But if we are willing to work through complexity, then we go over to the other side of complexity, which is simple, deep, and true. Now, the problem is simplistic mimics simple, Shallow mimics depth, and trite mimics true. So I'll give you an example. Uh, If you make eye contact with somebody in the lobby and you smile at each other, if you haven't worked through complexity yet, if there hasn't been conflict or you're not really connected to that person, that smile is simplistic, shallow, and trite. But if you have worked through some conflict together and you have built trust and there's connective tissue there, Then when you smile from across the lobby to each other, it's loaded. There's meaning, and it's simple, but it's deep, and it's true. I know this. After I've had meetings with some of you during the week, and I see you on Sunday, you know, I may look like I'm just saying hi to to everybody else, but in my heart, I feel a little jolt of 
positivity and energy and connection when we say hello after having met this week. We've shared words. We've experienced connectedness, intimacy, and trust. We reaffirmed our commitment to one another. And then when I see you on Sunday, it's like, oh, hi. And you all know what that's like. Uh, If you don't do this, though, you know, uh, you can be avoidant. But if you work through complexity, you can get to a place of accepting. You can be in a place of judgmentalism. But if you work through the complexity, you can get to understanding. Doesn't mean you agree, but you understand. On the one side of complexity, you have black and white. And on the other side, you have nuanced. And then on the other side, you have reactive. But if you work through complexity, you have differentiated. Now, this chart is helpful for me because these are your three options in life. What kind of relationships do you want to have? Do you want to stay safe, but simplistic, shallow, trite, avoidant, judgmental, black and white, and reactive to each other? Or do you want to work through the complexity and get to simple, deep, true, accepting, understanding, nuanced, and differentiated? Or maybe some of you are like me and you just live in complexity way too much. (laughs) The goal of complexity is to get through it. You know? So that's what you're doing. When you reach out to somebody and you begin with, I'm sorry, it's an invitation to say, hey, let's get complicated for a season. Let's work some stuff out. Let's do a deep dive. Let's confess some sin. Let's point some fingers. But let's do it within the context of commitment. Isn't this what marriage is? Isn't this what friendship is? Isn't this what the body of Christ is all about? Now, um, I'm very aware that apologies are complicated business as well. It gets real tricky, primarily because of our ego. And so for our last part in our sermon, I want to read something that I think really unpacks and addresses every which way that we resist apologizing to somebody else. And I hope you're able to find yourself in this and be able to say, I'm sorry. Okay? This is Harriet Lerner, and she's a really insightful writer. Uh, she wrote a book called Why Won't You Apologize? She says this, Most embarrassingly, I, f- I found myself issuing a non-apology to someone close to me the other day. I had made a boneheaded scheduling mistake that had seriously inconvenienced this person again, and I needed to address it. Yet the words that came out of my mouth were so hyper-concerned with taking the quote-unquote correct amount of responsibility and not a smidgen more that the apology backfired. How many of you have been there before? While there's more to reconciliation than saying you're sorry, an apology is certainly a big part of the deal. If you've ever had someone say sorry and mean it, you know how healing a genuine apology can be. Apologies are threatening. They involve giving something up, maybe your pride, maybe your sense of fairness, maybe something material or financial. This is particularly difficult for those whose sense of self is wobbly already. Non-apologizers tend to walk on a tightrope of defensiveness above a huge canyon of low self-esteem. They just can't listen to anything that's going to set them off balance. Apologizing shatters the myth of our own innocence. 
and we may have built an identity around that. Even when the offended party is largely at fault, apologizing for one's own part in the incident, however small it may be, is a start. An apology is an act of faith. All you can do is put it out there and see what happens. The best apologies are short and don't include explanations that can undo them. Little add-ons like, but, I'm sorry I forgot your birthday, but I was stressed out with work. Or if, I'm sorry if that joke made, uh, I made at the meeting offended you. will turn your sorry into a not-so-sorry at all. Another common way we ruin an apology is to basically say, I'm sorry you feel that way. I've heard this before. Or, I'm sorry that what I said made you upset. You're saying, in effect, I'm sorry that you reacted the way you did to my perfectly reasonable behavior. (laughs) A true apology focuses on our behavior and not on the other person's response. Another fine way to ruin an apology is to view your apology as an automatic ticket to forgiveness and redemption. That is, it's really about you and your need for reassurance. I'm sorry shouldn't be viewed as a bargaining chip to give you something back from the injured party like forgiveness. So forgiveness is tricky, but so is starting that process with an apology. Our ego gets really instantly tangled up as soon as there is a reason to say the two little words, I'm sorry. I would ask you, When is the last time you said to someone, I'm sorry? It's a small step, but it's the first step, and it's the most important step in us being reconnected, reconciled, and restored to the body of Christ. And when we say sorry, it's a gift that we give. And if the party we're apologizing to forgives us, it's the gift they get to choose to give us. But it's not up to us to demand it from them. Our job is to give the gift of, I'm sorry. Forgiveness is not entitled to us. And of course, the book of Colossians is brilliant. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul started out the whole letter to the Colossians talking about God's I'm sorry. He had no part in the sin that we committed, but he who knew no sin became sin for us as God's apology to reconcile us to himself. He paid the price that we should have paid, and he restored us to himself. It says this, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you are formally alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we pray that today we may find the courage to say, I'm sorry. Restore us to this body, to this local church. Help us to examine our hearts and our deeds and actively find some way 
to undo some of the ways that we've been alienated and cut off and living in some diminished connectedness. I pray that the spark of life would flow through reconciled relationships in this church. I pray this with hope because you did it. You did the hardest work of reconciling us to God. And now the only thing left is for us to be reconciled to one another. So help us to do that this week in Jesus' name. Amen.